I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. America has gone crazy and not in a good way. (laughs) In this hour, the internationally renowned writer, cultural critic, and public intellectual regarded as one of the top 50 educational thinkers of the modern period. He's one of my favorite guests on this program. And I'm delighted to welcome him back for a conversation about the growing cult of fascism in America. That's why I said America's gone crazy, but not in a good way. Um, We are becoming more and more fascist every single day. We're going to unpack that and why that is in this hour with our guest, Dr. Henry Giroux. Dr. Giroux, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Hi, Tavis. Good to hear your voice. It's good to hear your voice. Delighted to have you back on. Let me jump right in and make the most of this hour. Don't want to waste a single minute with you. Um, let me just start with some basics, some fundamentals, and we'll build uh, as we move through this hour. As I said a moment ago, America's gone crazy. Thank you, Prince. Uh, we've gone crazy, uh, but we're going crazy in ways that just uh, seem unimaginable. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, for starters, as, again, as we build this foundation um, what examples you would offer, and I want to just get out of your way and give you time. What examples would you offer uh, of the fact that we are becoming more fascist every day? And number two, what do you think the root cause of that is? Take it away. Well, I, I think we're becoming more fascist every day because we're starting to see policies in a political party, in a language that, that basically begins with the language of brutality. Uh, and it increasingly becomes normalized. It's the language of hatred. It's the language of racism. It's the language of violence. There's cause for civil war. And we're beginning to see a party that is unapologetic about not only its hatred of democracy, but its willingness to align itself with a whole range of fascist demagogues, whether we're talking about Orban in Hungary or formerly with Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, that more than willing is more than willing to say democracy doesn't work anymore and that Basically, what we're going to do is implement policies that do a number of things. We're going to destroy what we call historical consciousness and the possibility for moral witnessing. We're going to engage in a politics of uh, disposability, a hallmark of fascism, Mm -hmm. which calls for racial purity. Ultra-nationalism, the endless militarization of everyday life, as we just saw, of course, with another killing of uh, an absolutely uh, innocent black man. Mm -hmm. And, and, of course, the suppression of education and dissent and the demonization of, of enemies, or, I'm sorry, of, op- of people who are considered oppositional. You know, these are not just people who, who disagree with you. These are people who need to be destroyed. You know? And so, I mean, that language is, is one that, in a, in a very fundamental way, uh, speaks to the possibilities of a society that has lost its mind that now exists in a realm of what I call political and moral nihilism. Mm. Uh, a society that has lost all vestiges of the social and social responsibility, hates the social contract, and, and basically believes that the only way to deal with social problems is to basically militarize them and to punish people who are basically engaged in them. So, I, I mean, they're just some of the many I mean, I, things that I think that we can, you know, we, we, we've seen, we've been seeing. And I, you know, I'm particularly concerned about what's happening in Florida because mm-hmm. this guy is, is a model for, for fascism. I mean, he... This, this, by, 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 by this guy, you mean Florida Governor, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis? I'm, I'm talking about Ron DeSantis. Yes. Un, unapologetic. Mm-hmm. In his, you know, Primo Levi, the great historian of the Holocaust, made a comment once, and he, and he said that basically every age has its own fascism. Mm. The Republican Party since the 1980s has proven that. 
And now it's coming home to roost, in the words of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. We're really starting to see uh, a fascist politics unapologetic in, in terms of its, of its attributes, in terms of its principles, in terms of its hatred of anything other than what, uh, what appears to be white Christian nationalists. And it's attempt to destroy every civic institution that basically upholds the possibility for being critical and for creating informed, engaged citizens. That's the key. Mm -hmm. We're just getting started. Uh, it didn't take long <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get him wound up. Uh, he came out the blocks, uh, and uh, as I knew he would, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this hour. Let me tell you right now, it's going to be fire for the next, uh, what, 40, 50 minutes? 50 minutes. Uh, I, I see already a few places I want to go, and we'll go there in just a moment. I want to probe this notion of political and moral nihilism, get him to unpack that a great deal more. I want him to, uh, I want to probe this notion of uh, democracy. He says uh, there are people who believe that democracy doesn't work. I'm not sure it does. I want to challenge him respectfully on that. You know my point of view on this, that America is not yet a democracy. We are at best an experiment in democracy. We are, we've got a Madisonian framework that we can do something with. But we're not as yet a democracy. We're an experiment in democracy. So I'm not sure uh, that I see the evidence that democracy works, although I don't think that's an excuse uh, to behave in fascist ways. We'll talk about that. We'll talk more about this language of brutality he's already started to unpack. Uh, and uh, a great deal more. Our guest in this hour is one of my favorite guests, Dr. Henry Giroux. Uh, more with him when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Henry Giroux, let's start with this, this notion of political and moral nihilism that you referenced earlier. Uh, give me more on that for uh, first, and we'll, we'll move from there, sir. Yeah, I mean, I talk about moral nihilism in, in a sense that I'm talking about a political and economic system that increasingly has arrived at the point where the question of social responsibility has been uh, eliminated from almost any consideration. You know, you have a capitalist system that says that basically economic activity shouldn't be concerned with questions of social cost. And I think that when that happens, what begins to happen throughout every aspect of, of the social structure is that questions of social responsibility disappear. And I think that when questions of social responsibility disappear, power doesn't, isn't, is no longer accountable. Civic culture gets eradicated. There's a systematic erosion, erosion of any sense of shared citizenship. Mm. Private interests become much more important than collective interests. Social needs begin to disappear because they're not factored into a society that takes seriously the fact that we're connected and that we're connected by issues of compassion, justice, love, sensitivity, the rights of others. And when that language disappears and the language of self-interest and the language of political corruption and the language of violence and the language of what I would call an amazing investment in political power at any cost, you really begin to have the death. You begin to live in a, what I call a civic death zone, mm. uh, because it's willing to basically justify and even argue for, if not be, uh, how might you say it, uh, proud of the fact that you can eliminate people from Medicaid. For instance, 2.7 million people in Florida who have no health insurance, as one example, or eliminate, uh, eliminate uh, young children from a tax credit, which means that 3.7 million children will go into poverty. Can you believe this? And this, these are policies that now are justified in the name of expediency 
for lowering the cost of taxes for the rich. That's about the death of ethics. Mm, I love that death of ethics, the death of ethics. Um, you mentioned uh, corruption. Um, what happens to a democracy? Uh, and I want to uh, probe this notion of whether democracy does it. Well, let me start with that. Let me start with that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So you hey, me- yeah, I know. I'm really, I'm really curious about that point you made because I want to. I really want to engage it. Let, let's let's engage that um, because my, my view is that America uh, has a Madisonian framework for democracy. Um, but the ways in which we are acting uh, suggest to me that we are not as yet a democracy. At best, we are an experiment in democracy. But there's a, there's a fundamental difference to my mind between the ideals, the I-D-E-A-L-S that we profess, and the crazy, insane ideas that you were just unpacking, including fascism, that we seem to embrace. So at best, I think we are an experiment in democracy. We're not quite a democracy yet. And uh, to that to that end... Uh, I can see then how people will exploit the notion uh, that democracy really doesn't work, and they then suggest other things, including authoritarianism. Uh, That's my take. Give me yours. Well, my argument has always been that the United States is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a difference between the ideal and the reality Mm -hmm. of what a democracy represents, and I think that any society built on enormous racial inequities and class differences and basically engages in an ongoing war culture against the social state is far from a democracy. But I think that the, tr- the, the, the real issue here is, and it's fundamental, because it's, not, it's about questions of voice and about questions of power. In a democracy, you can, it, we have an alleged democracy in which you have political rights and you have personal rights, but you don't have economic rights. Mm. You can't have democracy without economic rights. I'm sorry. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a socialist. I mean, I, I believe in democratic socialism. I think that capitalism and democracy are not the same thing. It's a huge mistake we have made. But I think that what we hear now coming from the right is not only an attack on the ideal of democracy, but it's, an, it's a language that basically supports the notion of authoritarianism, which is very different. They're not saying that democracy, they're, they're, not, they're not engaging in what, we, they, what you and I might call the failures of, a, of con- conflating capitalism and democracy. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is the very ideals of democracy, we don't, we don't buy into. They're too dangerous. And that's why they use the phrase illiberal democracy mm-hmm. as a way to justify a political system that they now align themselves with and are arguing for. Mm. So to, to, to your notion uh, that you can't have a democracy without political rights, personal rights, and economic rights. Uh, I get the political, I get the personal, and more importantly, I get how you can uh, set a frame for those. But uh, when it comes to economic rights, how would you guarantee every fellow citizen an economic right? Uh, Help me imagine that. What does that look like? Let me tell you what I think it looks like in terms of a very simple concept, the notion of time. Mm -hmm. When time. When time is a deprivation, you have to make a choice between food and drugs. When time is a deprivation because social provisions don't exist that guarantee the most basic economic rights, health care, free education, housing, things that basically impinge on your agency in such a way that you cannot even imagine, never mind live out, the ideals of democracy. And I, and I think that when we fail to recognize that, we fail to recognize that people who are engaged in a, in a day-to-day war for survival Democracy is meaningless. It's just meaningless. Mm. It doesn't mean anything. And in many cases, you get people, they don't have time to think about whether they should vote, 
don't have time to think about, you know, what, what the major issues are that Republicans and these far-right fascist groups are pushing and how they impinge on their lives. They don't live in the world of abstractions. They live in the world of visceral violence. And it seems to me that until we come to grips with this and try to understand that you need a social welfare state in which the basic elements that provide a sense of political individual agency are at work, you don't have a democracy. And that's what they fear. But there's also another fear, Tavis. Mm -hmm. And that other fear is they define democracy in the very distorted terms in which they use that term as basically a place of citizenship for white people. The public sphere is not a public sphere. It's a sphere for white Christian nationalists. It's not a sphere for people, uh, what, what were you called, multi, you know, a, a vast majority of different groups who can occupy the, the, the public sphere and the social state in ways that suggest an alignment of differences in the interest of the common good. That stuff disappears in that, in that discourse. Mm. What happens to a democracy, um, whether we are one presently or not, um, that's what we aim to be, <clears throat> aim to be or aim to become. What happens in a democracy when there's this level of extreme greed and normalized corruption? What happens is it turns into a fascist politics. It, what happens is that the move, we, move, we move away from democracy to extremism. We move away from trying to understand what the historical, structural, economic causes of inequality and the war against democracy are, and we look for scapegoats. And we find them in, in, of course, we find them in blacks. We find them in indigenous people. We find them in people who are considered disposable. We find them in those people, basically, who are the objects of racial cleansing. We find them in those groups that are being erased from history, those groups for whom it becomes dangerous to become literate. Mm. I, um, I, I want to go to Florida uh, because I was just trying to figure out the order I want to do this. I've got two thoughts in my head at the same time. Let me go to Florida because you teed that up earlier. And um, the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis there, who is uh, completely out of control on so many levels, we don't have time to really unpack all of that. But I was li literally just reading yesterday a couple of things I want to bring to the attention of the audience. I know Dr. Uh, Giroux, Henry Giroux already knows this, but I want to bring it to your attention. So you've been hearing on this program and other places uh, that in Florida, Ron DeSantis has pushed back. Uh, we had a conversation here days ago about this African-American AP course uh, from the college board that he refuses to be taught, uh, allowed to be taught, uh, allowed to be taught rather in the state of Florida. So they, 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 he won't let them teach this AP course. I mean, literally an advanced placement course, an AP course uh, in African-American studies. He will not allow that to be taught in Florida. He's pushed back against that and made it illegal. Uh, and in other ways and spaces with his uh, 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 Stop Woke Act, that's what it's called, the Stop Woke Act, uh, he is uh, coming down hard on teaching the truth in classrooms in a variety of ways. Here's what I was reading, though, literally just yesterday, that there are now school districts in the state of Florida. Hear me on this. There are now school districts in the state of Florida who are telling teachers to hide certain books. They're literally telling them to hide books. They're telling them because we don't know what's legal and what's illegal, because we don't know what, we, what might get you arrested, might get you fired. They're literally telling teachers to hide certain books, to not teach certain subjects, subject matter, to not reference certain books, certain text in their uh, syllabus or syllabi. But that's what's happening in the state of Florida, that teachers 
are being told by their administrators to hide certain books in the state of Florida lest they end up being arrested or sent to jail. I ask very simply, Dr. Giroux, what does that remind you of? Well, I mean, you know, we've seen this before, right? I mean, we've seen the banning of books. We've seen the call for loyalty lists. We've seen the firing of people who don't agree with state-aligned propaganda. I mean, this this is not new. Uh, and I, But I think that what often happens in this discourse about what's going on in Florida and, of course, in Texas and in a whole range of other states, 50 or 15 states, I think, right now that have laws in place or are attempting to put in place that are engaged in eliminating the critical function of education entirely. But I, I think what we're seeing here is we're really seeing an attack on public education. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is it's public. They really want to privatize education. They really do. I mean, they, they have no interest uh, in, in allowing uh, public education to function in a way that it, it can assume its critical function. I mean, I, I think you have to remember, right, the first casualty of authoritarianism are the minds that would oppose it. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it and it seems to me that what we're seeing here is we're in the censorship, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the denial of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and the internment, the Japanese internment and the elimination of uh, indigenous people. We're seeing the elimination of a history that would give people the right to understand or the willingness to understand and the need to understand how history might repeat itself and what you might want to do in light of the way in which it's manifesting itself and has, and, and, in terms of what has happened in the past. So history becomes dangerous. This is an attack on public education, an attempt to privatize it. It's an attack on what I what I call uh, basically political agency, the ability of people to be informed so they can be actively engaged citizens, and it's an attack in in many ways on the very viability of what a democracy needs and what it needs are people who are analytical, who are critical, who are smart. This is really a, uh, a program for not just manufactured ignorance. It's a program that elevates instinct over emotion and indoctrination over the possibility of an informed public. It's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to put these pieces together to understand that in the, in the long run, this is an attack on the very basis of what any democracy, whether an ideal or not, would stand for. And that is, you've got to have citizens who are informed. You've got to have citizens who have an historical consciousness. You've got to have citizens, in a way, who can exercise a sense of political and moral agency. You know, you can't turn these places into pedagogical death zones, Mm. which is what... I mean, you're dealing with pedagogical death zones. These are places of terminal exclusion. They're factories for terminal exclusion. They write people out of the language of citizenship. They write people out of the language of justice. And they write people out of the language of retribution. Mm. And that's dangerous. Um, Speaking of dangerous, um, you and I agree on this, that when authoritarianism starts creeping, when fascism hits the fast-forward button, uh, the first casualty is always truth. Uh, Truth is always the first casualty. So you and I agree in that regard. Uh, Let me do something now that I advise all of my uh, friends and and, friends Uh, young students uh, not to do. I tell folk all the time, particularly if you're black or for that matter, any race, there are two things you want to stay away from. And Dave Chappelle made a joke about this recently on 
not long ago on Saturday Night Live. Um, and he said, you know, keep the Jews out of your mouth. You do not want to be making comments about the Jewish community. Uh, and, and number two, I tell folks, stay away from Hitler. Just don't make references to Hitler. Um, because if you don't get your frame right, you'll lose your job. Um, I, I raise that because um, while I encourage people to be careful about how they invoke the name of Hitler in their in their political commentary, um, this thing about Ron DeSantis in Florida is 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 not just eerie; it's it, it's scary, and I think it's a cautionary tale because when you talk about historically places around the globe that we talk about today. Uh, and offer today as examples of what we do not want to be, given um, uh, our effort to become more human. Um, what happened in these communities, uh, in these societies rather, was that they started banning books. They started telling people to hide certain material. Uh, this is the making of anarchy. This is the making of fascism. This is the making of dictatorship. It's the making of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm raising that only because I want to make this point, uh, uh, Professor Giroux, and that is that we cannot, to my mind, just dismiss Ron DeSantis as another Republican, uh, another I, crazy guy. We, 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 I, I, my, my sense is that we get caught up in the politics of talking about Ron DeSantis, but I don't think we're really looking at what he is doing and what this means historically for society who started out doing stuff like this. No, I think you're absolutely right, and, and, I, and I think we can take that lesson right from DeSantis. I mean, the last thing that DeSantis wants people to do is to understand the history of fascism, to understand the history of racial capitalism and how fascism basically begins in the U.S., maybe with the Ku Klux Klan, and not simply in the 1930s with Hitler. I mean, you know, Hitler was a guy who turned to the United States to try to understand something about eugenicism. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I think that what, what's, what's really crucial here is that you know, we, we have a language in the United States that tends to individualize problems, mm -hmm. right? There's no bridge between looking at minor, looking at uh, very particular issues and connecting them to larger systemic considerations, whether historical or relational. And I think when you fall into that trap, uh, you, it's easy to write off somebody like DeSantis, as people did with Trump. You know, mm -hmm. they, they might say, oh, he's crazy. You know, oh, he's just a clown or he's a buffoon. Individual, individualizing the problem, you have no way to engage the social in terms of its larger politics. You know, you know this argument. It's, it's, it's the argument of rogue cops, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, they're rogue cops. You know, it doesn't really speak to the culture of violence that's in, 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 basically imprinted in police forces. Well, they're not rogue cops. I mean, they're part of a system. Mm -hmm. And if you don't and the system, in terms of its structural and ideological manifestations, you lose it. No. You, you have no way you, of translating particular issues into larger social problems. You're making a powerful point, and to that end, if you missed our conversation yesterday with Connie Rice at the uh, start of Hour 2 yesterday, we were honored to receive a phone call from our friend and brother Ben Crump, who was about to walk into the church in Memphis uh, for the funeral of Tyree Nichols, Ben Crump called into this program yesterday uh, live and exclusively to share his thoughts with us before he went into the funeral service for Tyree Nichols. Uh, after Ben Crump uh, got off the phone, we spent the rest of that hour with Connie Rice. And given what uh, Henry Giroux just says now about the history of policing and the state of policing, if you missed our conversation yesterday with Connie Rice, you missed something. Go to the podcast, go to our platforms. You must hear uh, the way Connie Rice put it down yesterday on this program. We'll continue with Henry Giroux when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Henry Giroux, uh, what would it take for this tinderbox of fascism in Florida to be lit into a full-bore fire? 
Well, I, I well, let's say, well, I, I think clearly the people of Florida and, and people in the United States have to wake up and recognize that the first thing to, uh, one of the, one of the rules of authoritarian, authoritarianism is that power becomes invisible in terms of how it's used and what its consequences are. And I think to the degree that you, it becomes visible, uh, you know, it can, it can be in some way understood in order to be resisted, in order to be overtaken. And I, and I think that uh, to go back to the way this conversation has been developing, you know, what, what people like DeSantis and others, he's just a symbol, really, mm-hmm. uh, and, and along with Trump and others, are, are really relying on, is they recognize the power of learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. They recognize something that Bowman once said. He said, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And I, and I think that, you know, ignorance is learned. It's a habit. And, it, and it's learned when civic institutions begin to collapse. And I think people need to raise fundamental questions about what kind of future do they want to live in. Do they want to live in a future, basically, in which matters of racism, the politics of disposability, warfare, anti-intellectualism, and white supremacy govern their lives? Or, in fact, do they, are they going to have to translate, basically, an understanding of what's going on into a kind of group, collective action? a unity of sorts of various groups, from workers to various people fighting for all kinds of rights, whether it be women's reproductive rights or the rights to save the planet. They're going to have to come together in a mass party in, in order to challenge this, this behemoth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, with all due respect to uh, my fellow citizens uh, in this place called America, with all due respect to fellow citizens, I wonder uh, how much of this, uh, if any of this, uh, being allowed to take hold, fascism that is, uh, in our nation, has to do with a dumbed-down demos. Oh, you got it. I mean, you hit it, Tavis. I'll tell you. I, I mean, look, I wrote a book about what I call manufactured ignorance. Mm-hmm. I, and central to that book is the notion that education is really central to politics. And it doesn't just take place in schools. It takes place in a whole range of cultural apparatuses that are largely controlled by the Murdochs of the world, the corporate elite. Fortunately, we have, we have, we have outliers like your program and others. But it seems to me that what you have is you have a culture that is basically aligned with stupidity and ignorance in the interest of keeping people dumb mm. so that they don't basically have to hold power accountable. I mean, when Trump said he loves the uneducated, that wasn't a joke. And when, when, when DeSantis passes laws that bans books, makes librarians tremble in fear for being persecuted because they have certain books in, their, in, their, in the library, or teachers have certain books in the room, when you say you can't talk about race, you can't, can't talk about transgender, I mean, this is basically an attempt to depoliticize people by taking away their ability to understand both their relationship to themselves, others, and the larger world, from being able to recognize evil. Your argument about the truth, when the truth collapses into misinformation, what emerges is the inability to understand and recognize evil. Mm. That's what we don't get here. Mm. I mean, you know, historical consciousness and literacy and liberation inform each other. The freedom to learn, the freedom to understand, the freedom to engage is the freedom to bear witness in the face of racist terror. Mm. And that's a freedom that we have to once again come to grips with. Let's let's interrogate here uh, now, uh, Henry Giroux, this notion of, 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 of truth. Uh, and I guess the question is, what happens again to a democracy when the truth becomes what each of us determines it to be? 
Well, I, I think it, it, it mimics a kind of neoliberalism, which seems to suggest that the only thing that matters is self-interest and the world in which we, we the world that we occupy for our own interest, mm. and that we don't need evidence, we don't need justice, we don't need compassion, we don't need an historical reckoning, uh, we don't need critical analysis, we don't need inf- an informed uh, position. It's it's a world in which you can't distinguish between opinions and real analytical, evidence-based kinds of arguments. That's an attack on reason. That's not just an attack on the truth. That's the celebration of a form of irrationality that says there is no truth, Mm. that anything that anybody says has to be true because there's no world outside of who they are and what they believe in. That's basically more than a conspiracy theory. That's the ultimate basis for stupidity and ignorance. Mm. Since you mentioned reason, um, what's your view Uh, on how we regard or disregard the notion of reason today in our public discourse? I think reason has been weaponized. I I think that the ability to to have an informed judgment, the ability to take scientific evidence into consideration, the ability to read history critically and, and to in some way reveal its dynamics, whether therefore in the interest of liberation or the interest of injustice. I mean, these things are very frightening because critical understanding, critical consciousness, the ability to think critically opens up doors that people often don't want to walk through. They don't want to go into that room where you have to be somewhat accountable for the past by at least asking yourself, what can I do when the worst dimensions of that past reproduces itself? But reason has another, another marker, it seems to me. Reason can be dangerous in that it can make visible what is often invisible. Mm. It can expose those kinds of contradictions that people in power don't want to see exposed because, for a very fundamental reason, they don't want to be held accountable for reproducing them. Mm. You mentioned critical thinking a moment ago. I want to come to that right quick here um, because it seems to me uh, as we're talking about education and the and the fascist ways in Florida, uh, that Ron DeSantis is pushing back against that. Um, it seems to me that if there is one goal, if education only has one goal, that one goal ought to be to teach us how to think critically for ourselves. That is the the, the ultimate goal. It seems to me of any educational pursuit that you learn. No, I don't- you, you I don't, don't believe that. Okay, okay. Let me let me let me let me, let me finish my thesis. I, I, I'm I, I love this. I love and guests disagree with me. That's why I said it seems to me, and I'll shut up and let you respond. It seems to me that if there is but if there is but only one goal, that goal to me uh, ought to be that education teaches us how to think critically for ourselves. You disagree? Tell me what your take is, and tell me why. I'll tell you why. Okay, Thomas. tell me. I'm going to make a distinction for you that my friend Paulo Freire used to make. Okay. I think there's a difference between critical thinking and critical consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I think critical thinking says, yeah, you've got to be analytical, you have to be able to understand issues, you have to be able to take things apart, you have to be informed. But critical consciousness says you have to be a critical thinker in order to be able to intervene in the world and make a difference when it's necessary. Mm. Nope, I lose. Okay. <laughs> that, that was simple and that was quick and that was easy. I lose. I have to change my phrase. I want, I want to marinate on that some more, but I hear your point loud and clear. More importantly, I felt the point you made uh, about the distinction between critical thinking 
and critical consciousness. Here's my question right quick. Uh, assuming that you were right about this and assuming that perhaps I'm wrong, I, again, I'll marinate on it more, but whether it's, <laughs> whether, whether it's, that's why I love, I say all the time, let me just stop for a second. I say all the time on this program, I said a few moments ago, that at our best, what we do is to uh, offer you uh, an opportunity to re-examine the assumptions that you hold. That's true for me as a talk show host. Re-examining the assumptions that I hold, expanding my inventory of ideas. If it's good enough for me, it ought to be good enough for you. But that's what this program does at its best. And there are days I walk in here and my assumptions get re-examined. I hear the point he's making about critical thinking versus critical consciousness. By either one of those standards, how do you think we're doing in our education system as we now know it? Oh, I, I, I think the education system is under enormous siege. I, I mean, you know, and it didn't just begin, of course, with, with, with Trump and with DeSantis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the educational system since the 1980s, and uh, with the emergence of Ronald Reagan, started implementing policies in which critical education and critical consciousness and teaching people to, kids to be informed citizens began to disappear. I mean, it was an education for teaching for the test. It was an education that seemed to suggest that you only get an education in order to get a good job, an education to be a worker, to be able to work in McDonald's and not complain. I mean, it wasn't an education that basically said the first purpose of education is to create one that uh, gives students the opportunity to both engage, deepen, and understand the role they play in making a democracy work and the role they play in being compassionate and just human beings. You don't get educated to simply improve your own self-interest. Mm. You get educated in order to live in a better world. You get educated in order to think not just simply not just simply to question your own assumptions, but you get educated in order to be more compassionate in what it means to think outside of your own interest so that you can live in a world in which the question of compassion and justice and care and love matter. They become material elements of what it means to be a fully developed human being. It means you get educated to expand your humanity. That's what it should mean. As my friend Zoe Williams would say, if he were here right now, Henry Giroux is on fire right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Check out Zoe Williams every night, 7 to 9 p.m. Um, you will not regret that. When we come forward uh, with Henry Giroux, who is on fire right about now, uh, we'll talk about uh, this notion he raised earlier that I haven't had a chance to interrogate yet. Uh, the death of ethics, as he put it, the death of ethics. We'll talk about that. And I, I want to pivot uh, ever so gently uh, to this notion of housing. We raised the issue of housing earlier, but should housing be a right in this country? You're listening to Henry Giroux on KBLA Talk 1580. By the ad council. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. Hey, hey. Henry Giroux, when you said earlier, um, and you invoked this phrase earlier, the death of ethics, you meant by that what exactly? I meant that the question of social responsibility and care for the others is substituted for a system that basically seems to suggest a reality TV program, that everybody's on the island, that we're all on the island, but only one, one people really wins in the end. Mm. I mean, there's this kind of social Darwinism that pits people against each other by celebrating a, a kind of solipsistic self-interest and, and what I what I would call an unchecked individualism mm-hmm. that seems to suggest that uh, you know that a kind of militaristic competition and a kind of hyper masculinity are really what should define our, our our relationship to each other shared fears share anxiety uh, the cost of winning 
I mean, all that, that kind of ethic is, is basically a war on the socialists, a war on social responsibility, and it, it ends up sort of offering the, the, the notion that any, any attempt to basically be kind or to be compassionate or to be just is basically a weakness. Uh, that, that it doesn't measure up to what it means to be a real man in what I, what I call a warrior culture. The warrior culture is not just about the police. You know, the warrior culture is about the entire society. We live in a society in which the punishing state has replaced the social state. All problems are individualized. Poverty is because, you know, you, you, you want to be poor and you're stupid. You're homeless because, you, you know, you like living outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's an ethic that destroys questions of character, destroys questions of, of ethics and social responsibility, and it's very dangerous. And it, prevent, it provides the precondition for fascism. When you say unchecked individualism, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, uh, unpack that in my own thinking, uh, this notion of unchecked individualism, and I'm wrestling with it because it seems to me that rugged individualism, as, uh, as it has been uh, uh, advanced and defined, is part of the American ethos itself. It is part of the American ethos, and it's a very dangerous part of the American ethos. And, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, intense, it's intensified under a kind of what I call savage capitalism that seems to suggest that the only interest that matters is self-interest. Well, the only interest that matters is that when you live in a society and you claim the only interest that matters is self-interest, you're on a very dangerous road to social decay. Uh, because basically we're interconnected and we have to live with each other and we have to be able to think about more than our own self-interest in order to survive in a society in which these interrelationships and these modes of solidarity are absolutely crucial. So it, it seems to me that where this unchecked individualism goes is, is into a kind of privatized nihilism that basically has no room whatsoever for questions of justice, for questions of solidarity, mm. for questions of shared values. Uh, and, 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 and again, I, I think it's dangerous, yeah. and, I, and I think it removes the, the question of justice and compassion and equity, which is why there's, mm-hmm. they're, they're reveled so much by the DeSantis's and the, and the Trumps of the world. You know, I mean, the last, remember, you know, these are people who believe uh, that, that equality and equity is an injustice. Mm-hmm. And think about what that means in terms of how that easily translates into a denial of social responsibility. You know, Orban in Hungary, who is, you know, the right wing's ultimate sort of hero. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who says he's against mixed racing. Think about that in terms of uh, social responsibility. Yeah. Think about what this, this racial cleansing that we see taking place in schools today. How does that measure with the death of social responsibility? What it, what it seems to suggest is it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. In our remaining moments with Henry Giroux, I want to come to this notion of housing. We are wrestling with the issue of homelessness here in Los Angeles. Our new mayor, Karen Bass, has made this her top priority. And there are all kinds of questions being raised about how she's going to accomplish what she said she would do uh, when she ran. And we're not the only city wrestling with this issue of uh, uh, homelessness and the unhoused. But it seems to me in this debate, uh, Henry Giroux, about the decay, how might I put it, the decay of our civilization and the the devolution of our culture at the center of that debate has to be a conversation about housing and i want to close by asking whether or not in that regard housing in this country should be a right uh, our remaining moments with henry Giroux when we come forward on kbla talk 1580 let's get back to henry Giroux on kbla talk 1580 i've got three minutes left in this conversation with him which i have immensely Uh, enjoyed and been challenged by, as I hope you have been as well. Um, The exit question, I think, Dr. Giroux, is whether or not housing should be a right. Absolutely, it should be a right. Uh, But the real question is not whether housing should be a right. The real question is why it isn't. Mm. 
And, and, it, and it seems to me it isn't because we refuse to link housing to the scourge of inequality in the United States. And, and the misappropriation of funds that should be going into, for the, should be used in the interest of the public good rather than the interest of basically corporations, the military, and private interests. Uh, so if we're going to talk about housing, we have to talk about inequality. I mean, the United States is one of the most inequitous countries in the world. It has one of the worst health care systems in the world. Uh, it, it's a system that basically refuses to provide the social provisions that would give people a decent life and affirm their dignity. And one consequence of that are two things. One is we have massive, a massive degree of homelessness. And secondly, we don't have the language to really address it, except to say we should build more houses. Or we should, you know, uh, appropriate those buildings that uh, lay vacant where people could ba basically live. I, li I think in the short run, some of those answers, some of those responses were okay. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, there's a fundamental problem. And that fundamental problem is 1% of the population owns about 50% of all the wealth. Yep. And corporations are not tax taxed. And we don't have a language for the public good. When we get a language for the public good that's linked to the re redistribution of wealth and power in the United States, the housing problem will be solved. Uh, I lied. That was not my exit question. Here's my exit question with it. 90 seconds to go. Um, as I'm listening to you talk about why housing should be a right and why it isn't, frankly, there are those who are listening right now, uh, perhaps who believe, as uh, many other Americans do, that too many handouts, certainly those on the right believe, that too many handouts make folk lazy. And the most recent example of that is these PPP checks. You give people money and you end up with a great resignation. How do you respond to folk who say that too many rights, too many handouts make Make American citizens lazy. I think it, they, they, they misread the issue. I, I think if you really want to talk about handouts, talk about handouts to the rich. They're completely unjust. Whether you're talking about handouts to corporations or to people like Trump who make millions of dollars and don't pay, pay taxes, that's where the handouts, it seems to me, represent an injustice. But to give, provide meager, literally meager support to people who are struggling to stay alive, the claim that that somehow uh, uh, makes people lazy is, is worse than a lie. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a discourse of ignorance that basically traps people in their own greed and lack of compassion. I promised you an hour ago, you'd be empowered by this hour. Did I lie? Did I lie? I think not. Himi Giroud, good to have you on. We'll do it again. All the best to you, my friend.